Thank you, Steve. Appreciate especially the prayer for our nation and, and hope everybody either uh, has already voted or will vote and uh, pray for the outcome. This is, uh, it, it's good to know that our citizenship is in heaven, but we also are active citizens here as well, but not citizens who despair because God is in control. So, hey, uh, it's uh, Time Change Sunday. How many of you um, set your clocks back after supper or, or for, no, back after supper last night? How many, oh, you are so good. You are righteous people. <laughs> oh, now, when you reset your clocks, what standard did you use? You know, we all use the same standard. Uh, the one time that is authoritative over us all, right? Greenwich Mean Time. And uh, based on the cesium atomic clock, because I looked it up. But it's interesting that how, how, how it works, that changing one digit uh, causes everything in your life to change, so that you adjust your life accordingly to that reset Everything else gets its bearings from that one change, according to that standard. Well, here's the parallel. Because you are in Christ, your moral bearings, your moral compass is now reset. Everything is different. And that's what Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 are about. We said last week that those verses are foundational for what follows in chapters 12 through 16. And if you have your Bible still open, look with me at chapter 12, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, that is based on chapters 1 through 11, where God's mercies are laid out as the free gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and you've got to make, make sure that we understand here, Romans 12 through 16 can't happen without Romans 1 through 11. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by those mercies, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, this is not to be viewed as extraordinary for the believer, but the normal Christian life. Verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Conformed means to appear on the outside what you're really not on the inside transformed means to appear on the outside what you really are on the inside so the meaning is in Christ you're a new creation he's saying change your outward behavior to fit with your new identity who God says you are that's where you get your bearings from that's your reset being transformed doesn't happen in one moment of decision but instead is an ongoing process with the word of God over us the Holy Spirit of God within us, the body of Christ around us. Um, so that is our spiritual service of worship. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, resets our moral compass. And then in verses 3 and following, after a plea for humility, despite our variety of spiritual gifts, verses 3 through 8, after that, verses 9 through 21 list Paul's moral 
bullet points, okay? You could consider each one of these verses a tweet if you wanted to. For, and each one is, is a description, a bullet point of how we are to live. Last week, we considered five mandates in verses 9 and 10, and we pick up from there today in verse 11. But in verses 9 and 10, let love be without hypocrisy. Second, abhor what is evil. Third, cling to what is good. Fourth, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Five, give preference to one another in honor. And we explored those last week. And today we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 16. But first, I have some questions for you. Do you ever get tired of the struggle of living the Christian life? Would you like to put your commitment to Christ on pause for just a few months? Maybe just a week. Do you think of your walk with Christ as a commitment or an obligation? Or maybe if both, which one overshadows the other? Do you ever set aside your commitment to Christ while you try to deal with hard things in your life all by yourself? You get angry easily. Are others surprised when you get angry? Or is that normal for you? Do you yell at your family where steam builds and eventually you erupt, which you also may think is their fault? Do you verbally criticize others often, especially when they're not there? Do you resist pleas for a special offering, even our Christmas missionary offering? Do you resent the fact that I just asked that question? Do you remember wrongs done to you and relive the event as you tell other people about it? Do you insist on having the last word in every situation? Or if you didn't think of the last word in time, do you fantasize about having that last word that you thought of later? Do you fantasize about having that, that last word and, and sort of relive the event over in your mind, just slaughtering them with your rapier tongue in Christian love? Do you enjoy catching others in their mistakes? Are you more concerned with edifying your brother or with justifying yourself? Do you have Christian friends over to your home for fellowship that is deeper than just fun and games? You're, you're all over the place on this. Yes, I am. Do you have non-Christian friends over to your home to love them with Christ's love? Do you resent it when someone in the church has something really great happen to them because it feels like nothing like that ever happens to you? When something bad happens to someone in the church, is your first thought one of relief that it didn't happen to you? Are you proud to be a member of Sigma Mountain Bible Church where we study the Bible a whole lot more deeply than all those other churches out there. Finally, are you sitting here wondering if I'm setting you up for a guilt trip with all these questions? Every one of these questions is exactly the opposite of one of the bullet points, the love mandates in verses 11 to 16. That's where those, I looked at those verses, and that's where those questions came from. How do we apply that? Last week, I said that none of this passage, this whole chapter, is hard to understand. It's easy to understand. It's hard to live out. 
it all goes back to let love be without hypocrisy to that mandate. And then when you look at the first five mandates in verses 9 and, nine and 10, last week we said there's just not an inch between any of them. They all fit into the same trajectory of loving one another with God's love. In chapters 12 through 16, the love of God is the air that believers are to breathe as we live godly lives in community together and out in the world. That air should permeate and inform our every thought and action. That air is God's agape love. And it just ties all these virtues, all these mandates together. So before we move forward in this text, I want to talk about how God's agape love relates to some of the other biblical themes. Because God's love, God's agape love, not only ties all these virtues together in chapter 12, it is the, the air, the, the magma that ties the whole Christian life together. It connects everything. First, I want to ask the question, what is the meaning of the word agape when we speak of agape love the word agape refers to unconditionally committed love some scholars say that agape refers to God's love well that's not 100% accurate Uh, Paul spoke of Demas and he said Demas has deserted me having loved this present world agape so but the point is he was unconditionally committed to this world to this world but 99, that's one negative example. 90, the point is, there are 99% positive examples of this word in the, in the scriptures. We are to develop and live in an agape culture where we are unconditionally committed to Jesus and to one another. I'm going to repeat that. We are to, be de- to develop and live in an agape culture where we are unconditionally committed to Jesus and to each other, to one another. So how does agape love relate to all the other large parts of the Christian life that we see in Scripture? For example, how does it relate to the greatest commandment? One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost, foremost is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love, agape, the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love, agape, your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus says agape love towards God, totally uncommitted, unconditionally uncommitted, and unconditionally uncommitted agape towards your neighbor. That's the greatest possible command. Okay, so that explains that, how that relates. What about spiritual gifts? Spiritual gifts are a part of the believer's life. Paul's already talked about love in connection to spiritual gifts in verses 3 through 8 in this chapter already. But how do spiritual gifts connect with this? Well, to reinforce this from elsewhere in Scripture, where is the love chapter in the Bible? What we call the love chapter 1 Corinthians 13, yeah. 1 Corinthians 12 is all about spiritual gifts, right? 
And then, 1 Corinthians 13 says that there are three greater qualities to pursue than spiritual gifts. They are faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is agape. Agape love. Totally unconditionally committed love. Are there any other dots to connect with agape love? Yes. There is a connection between the fruit of the Spirit and agape love. I would suggest to you, and some of you may not have heard this before, I would suggest to you that the fruit of the Spirit is love, period. And that all the other things that follow after that are explanatory terms that describe what love looks like, that define love. And that looks like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, all of them flowing from agape love. And I can, I can prove that with a side-by-side comparison with 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, agape rejoices, love rejoices, fruit of the Spirit is joy. 1 Corinthians 13, love is not provoked. Fruit of the Spirit is peace. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient. Makrothume. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is patience. Makrothumia. Love is kind. Next fruit, kindness. Same Greek word. Love does not collect wrongs suffered, is not selfish, and never fails. In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, which is an umbrella term. Goodness. Love believes all things. Fruit of the Spirit, faithfulness. Same Greek word. Love does not brag, is not arrogant. Fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, literally humility. Galatians 5 is the fruit of the Spirit that declares what love is. 1 Corinthians 13 describes what love does. And then Romans 12 comes along and and has bullet points about what an agape community looks like. The reason I'm belaboring this point is, is because this is so critical. The agape love that's described here is to permeate every way that you think about living the Christian life and every way that you think about relating to one another in the body of Christ. So, whether or not we like each other (laughs) or whether or not we grate on each other, we are to love one another, which means that we make choices about how we're going to respond to one another. Last week, We looked at the five mandates in verses 9 and 10. And then we're going to start with verse 11. So in verse 11, the bullet points continue. So if you're going to join in with me there, we are to be, and three qualities are given, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I'm going to take these three together. Not lagging behind in diligence means that as far as zeal for the Lord is concerned, we're not to be lazy. But he links this with an inner zeal saying that we are to be boiling or burning inside because that's what fervent in spirit literally means. It's the opposite of what the church at Laodicea was was doing where they were lukewarm in zeal in Revelation 3. Scholars debate whether or not the spirit here is your human spirit or the Holy Spirit. The wording could go either way. 
I don't think it matters because the human spirit is to be responsive to what the Holy Spirit would do. And both phrases describe how we are to be serving the Lord. And it's emphatic. Serving the Lord. Our desire to serve Jesus should burn within us, should boil up, should overflow beyond us. One cynic said, most people have themselves as the center of the universe and they relate poorly to the other 7 billion people in the world who are under the delusion that they are the center of the universe. Well, Jesus had every reason to manifest pride because he is the center of the universe. Yet he was the one who washed the disciples' feet, including Judas's feet. He said he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He defines servanthood as that which God describes as greatness. Okay. Paul had seen the resurrected Jesus. If we could spend time in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, if we could see him, if we knew what the angels know, then any willful disobedience on, on our part to him would devastate us. Whenever heaven is described in Scripture, the, both men and angels run out of language. They run out of words to describe it. In Isaiah 6, when the prophet was given a partial vision of the majesty of God, he cried out in his sinful state, Woe is me! And then the question was asked, who will go for us? Isaiah's answer was immediate. I will. I'll obey. Because he had that heavenly vision. And remember Peter's response when right after seeing, again, partial glory of the transfigured Christ. He said, we have to respond to this. I've got to do something. I know what we'll do. It's the Feast of Booths. We'll make booths for Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Peter's aim was off. His aim was off, often off even when he had a sword in his hand. But when Peter saw glory, he just had to do something about it. I've got to do something. For us now, we see it in a mirror dimly. Um, scripture is very clear about that, but then it'll be face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I am fully known. When we get a glimpse of him, our redeemed response is, I've got to do something. I've got to do something to show my love. I've got to obey something. Give me some bullet points. Not to obey bullet points in the sense of checking a list of legalisms off, but in zeal to show his agape love to other people whom he loves. You get it? All right, look at verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, Devoted to prayer. Each one of these three amazing virtues could be a life goal. I mean, look at the first one. Rejoicing in hope. The early Christians had precious little to be joyful about in this world. Yet they could, according to Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Because Colossians 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do I rejoice in the hope that's mine in Christ, especially when times are hard? When circumstances crowd out our eternal vision because circumstances do crowd out our eternal vision. They do that. That's why we need to be challenged to this ongoing process of being renewed in our minds. The next verse you, 
persevering in tribulation refers not just to passive but to active endurance not just survival but being able to thrive in patient endurance paul's already talked about this in chapter 5 i'm going to read to you from chapter 5 we exult in tribulations knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint because the agape of god the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. There are many passages that talk about encouragement in the midst of horrible circumstances. Uh, let me just read one to you from 1 Peter chapter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation if you're reviled for the name of christ you're blessed because the spirit of glory of god rests upon you that's why paul could give his life goal in philippians 3:10, if i that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death I was talking to a friend this week who had surgery, sectioning of his colon that caused him great pain. And his comment to me was all about the sweetness of his communion with Jesus as well. You cannot have that communion without prayer. The next phrase is devoted to prayer. Not just praying, but devoted Developing a habit of communing with Jesus in prayer. It's another way of saying pray without ceasing. Verse 13 moves to a slightly different place. There's a transition here because verses 9 through 12 are largely about attitudes that are internal. And honestly, we can fake things like that on the outside. But, the Lord knows whether or not we're sincere, even if other Christians don't pick up on it. But now in verses 13 to 16, Paul includes external actions, things that can't be faked. I'm going to cover these briefly, and Lewis will probably want to dip down into these next week. Look at verse 13. Contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. These two really go together. I mean, practically, if we find ourselves facing persecution at some point in this country, we will need all the more to develop and grow in these two virtues, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And here I want to carefully define something. I want you to hear me well. Uh, hear me carefully about this. Um, I, I want to say what this is, I don't think this is talking about, but I want to make sure that you don't think I am rejecting this ministry. There is definitely a place for a ministry of radical, total hospitality to the homeless or whoever is out there, to street people. At the same time, we have a, a, an obligation to be wise as serpents, harmless in doves regarding safety for our own family. Even with the uh, Damaris House ministry in Greece, the trafficked women are brought not into homes but into a safe house. But even... Uh, 
but let me be clear if god gives you a ministry of radical hospitality to everybody after you seek godly counsel uh go for it <laughs> absolutely go for it here's what i'm saying this verse in this context i think has something different in mind which i'll try to explain using other scriptures and i'm going to move into the next phrase contributing to the needs of the saints the word for contributing has, has as its root the word for fellowship. Um, and fr friendship is what you have in a social club with people who have the same background, same interests, same status, maybe the same income. Fellowship is different and is far more precious. And the focus here is on needy saints. Many believers in the first century had lost their homes. You want, want to know how? Because of Paul and his persecution. In Acts chapter 8, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 9, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And these people would lose their homes. If they lived, they would become dependents. Listen to Romans 15. Paul says, but now I am going to Jerusalem serving the saints. These are the people that he persecuted. These are the people, some of whom he caused to be homeless. I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. How? Financially. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this, I, and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, interesting term, fruit of theirs, that is of Macedonia and Achaia, I will go on by way of you to Spain. Why, why do you think, see, at the time that we read that in Romans 15, he had not yet been arrested in, in Jerusalem. Why do you think that even when Paul knew he was likely to be arrested in Jerusalem, he went there anyway? I think he felt duty-bound. He owed them. And from the standpoint of ministry, now as a follower of Jesus, Paul traveled widely. For many years, he received the hospitality of other believers. And even years after Paul was executed, listen to 3 John, 3 John, verses 5 through 8. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love, your agape, before the church. You would do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. This is contributing to the needs of the saints. This is practicing hospitality. How do you do that? It's more radical than opening your home for people whom you already enjoy to come over for dessert. That's wonderful. And I'll be there. This is using your home to help people that sometimes you don't know. 
who were advancing the gospel. Would it include things like hosting a growth group? Sure. That's part of life in community together. And I hope that, that when Diane calls you about providing a meal for someone who is sick or who's moving, I hope you say yes. No one in our body who loses a job should lose a meal or need a place to stay. It's not a stretch for us to say that this also extends to our Christmas missionary offering. This is why, this is exactly what the, very, what the early church did. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, in Acts chapter 11, this is also what we're doing in, in sponsoring children in Haiti. It's what we're doing with Damaris House in, Greek, in Greece. But giving money for the purpose of enabling hospitality is not quite the same as demonstrating personal hospitality. So I want you to ask God how he would use you to practice hospitality. I hope you're getting the picture. Agape love, being a part of God's agape community, is both costly and rewarding. Verse 14, before I read that, last week, and just to remind you, we talked about giving each other a best-case interpretation. I told you these are bullet points that kind of move from topic to topic. When you give each other a best-case interpretation, that means you're choosing not to take offense with one another. That means within this church, you're choosing not to take offense with one another. But instead, sometimes people attribute the worst possible motives to others, other people. Don't. <laughs> Again, not hard to understand this. Don't do that. There's a lot of just do it that relates to this chapter. So in, instead, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. This verse contains three commands. Twice, bless, bless. Once, curse not. Who are the objects of this attention? Those who persecute you. And, and in verses 17 through 21, he's going to talk about persecution and revenge. Question, why does he mention it here? Because everything else in this section has to do with other believers within the church. I'm going to suggest something uncomfortable. This command is about being persecuted by other believers. If I'm right, then that persecution is not for the sake of the gospel. It's worse. It's personal. At this point, he's not talking about church discipline for them or, or uh, God's judgment upon them. He's talking about you and your own attitude when other believers are unfair to you or unjust with you or in your face. Listen to what Paul had to say to the Corinthian church. And he, he starts out being rather sarcastic with them. So just have you be aware of that from 1 Corinthians 4. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. He's talking about things that they have said about him in his absence. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, we are poorly, poorly clothed, we are roughly treated, we are homeless. And we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, 
as the dredge of all things, even until now. I do not say the, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. He's saying that believers should never experience the same hostility within the church that they get from outside the church. Another clear example is found in Rome itself. Several years later, when Paul was under arrest in Rome, this is at the end of the book of Acts, they had already received Romans, okay? The book we're now studying, they'd already received it. How did they respond to Paul? Almost all of them rallied around him, but some leaders were threatened and were even trying to cause Paul, their brother in Christ, distress in his imprisonment. Philippians 1 describes it. It's really astonishing. They were like the legendary Baptist deacons who sent the sick pastor a get-well card which says that they're praying for him to recover by a vote of 7 to 5. So how do we respond? We are to bless them. We're to bless these brothers and sisters and choose a best-case interpretation for their motives. Do we bless them with the southern, bless your heart, which means, aren't you stupid? No. In your prayer life, we are to ask your Lord and theirs to bless them. He's saying more than don't retaliate against them. He's saying more than you must forgive them. He's saying more than that. He's saying that you actively seek their good from God in prayer. And that's not easy. When even other Christians do things that hurt you, maybe they're not aware of it, but you're sure they are. Think about it this way. The one thing Satan cannot replicate is forgiveness because he's not been forgiven. Satan can't and won't forgive. God can and does forgive. Who do you want to imitate? Imitate God, not Satan. Ephesians 4 says... Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? Here's the reason he gives. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, therefore be imitators of God. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. And the other side of the same coin, weep with those who weep. We're to be the agape community, sharing our highs and our lows together. We're sort of used to hearing this exhortation in the, in the New Testament uh, about rejoicing and weeping. But I will promise you this sounded very strange to the Roman Christians because Greek and Roman philosophers normally exalted one virtue called apatheia, our word apathy, that that was a virtue choosing not to be involved with others. Physically, the inability to feel is called leprosy and it will destroy your, spiritual, your, your physical body. Its spiritual counterpart is being apathetic to your brothers and sisters in Christ and their, both their joys and their sorrows. And the result is even more deadly. But Gary, I want you to know something. I do feel deeply. I feel very deeply. I don't like them. And it feels much more natural to rejoice when they are sorrow, uh, sorrowful. Uh, and, and, and maybe even to become jealous when they have reason to rejoice and I don't. But we're told to feel genuine pleasure when the other person rejoices and to feel genuine grief when our brother or sister is grieved. 
Again, is this hard to understand? A, yes, B, no. No. They are just do it commands. So we share joys. When Noah and Amanda just had a baby, Ben is, is getting married. Um, when Michael got accepted to med school, when, when Matt got into the Naval Academy, when somebody gets a job, we share our sorrows when somebody loses a job or loses a parent or has a disease. We share the little things, the small joys, the small sorrows as well. We're a family and we pray for one another. The best commentary on this is from 1 Corinthians 12. There should be no division in the body. Members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now listen to what he says. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And now verse 16, be of the same mind towards one another and do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Well, there's a lot here, but I'm going to be brief. This brings us full circle back to verse 3 and closes out this section. And verse 17 begins a new section, which we'll look at next week. But I have a question. What is the greatest barrier, the greatest barrier to the unity that's described here? The, the unity that describes the agape community. Unity that's rooted in love. Answer, being haughty in mind and wise in your own estimation. The word haughty is elsewhere translated by the word high, physically high, like a mountain. Matthew 4, uh, when Satan took Jesus up to a high mountain, that's the word for haughty. And, and, and the idea is, I think, that's where your nose is. Or, if you like the translation, high and lifted up. <laughs> You're snooty. But again, listen to another scripture. Galatians 3, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female. Now, do those exist, differences exist? Yes, but they're not defining differences. What defines you is your identity in Christ. Because he continues, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not interested in having a homogeneous church planted in Rome and with one church uh, for, for the patricians, one church for the freedmen, one church for the slaves, one church for the foreigners, one church for the citizens. That's not the body of Christ. And again, his point is not uniformity. His point is unity. We're different, but we celebrate those differences together. Well, there are choices that we make for life together. Jesus made a choice to love the church and give himself for her. Love doesn't sit around and just emote. Love makes choices of how we are to act towards one another and live together with one another. That's God's agape community. Last week I talked about our spiritual horizon, how we grow spiritually. Either you extend your spiritual horizon as you grow closer to him above, or you spiral downward. 
There is no plateau on which you can rest and say, you know, I think I'll just stay right here. Thank you very much. Doesn't work that way. That's not the way spiritual life works. We are not spiritually static. We are spiritually organic and moving and changing and being transformed in one direction or the other. I love the fact that we have this promise. Don't forget that it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love the fact that God sets no limits on how holy you can become. Only we set those limits by our choices. Satan wants you discouraged, so discouraged that you give up. I can't live like this anymore. I just keep messing up, and we do. But God wants you encouraged because he who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. And if you mess up, and you will, at least I sure do, remember that today's another day for the adventure of being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Each day brings its own clean slate because that's God's plan. That's not mine, that's God's plan. Each day brings its own clean slate. Transformed by the renewing of your mind, take up your cross daily and follow him. I cannot live the Christian life tomorrow, but I can take up my cross daily and follow him. And together we grow as God's agape community. Ephesians 4 puts it this way. Speaking the truth in agape, in love. Speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up into all aspects unto him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, the whole body, every joint, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in agape. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of this passage. And Lord, I pray that there, there's so many thousands of ways we could apply this, that your spirit would target what we need and imprint this truth on our souls. That people would be loved through us with the love of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.